Welcome to The Pen and the Yod. Join Rabbi Michael Siegel of On at Synagogue in Chicago and author Jonathan Eig as they talk about this week's Torah portion of Maaseh, the Jewish triptych, myth and reality. So do you know your family's history? Do you know where people are from? Um, yeah, and not as well as I should. And not as well as I should. You know, I spend a lot of time researching the lives of other people, and I have spent, oh, my God, months and months and months trying to to learn um, who were the great-grandparents and great-great-grandparents of, you know, Martin Luther King and Muhammad Ali. And I haven't done nearly that much work on my own family. I know a little bit, but not as much as I should. So your family is sort of the equivalent of a shoemaker's children. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> they've been uh, neglected, and uh, here you are. I have this... neglected my ancestors, and I, uh, I will uh, apologize to them. <laughs> Maybe someday right. I'll get around to it. Right, feel free to be sufficiently guilty. Right. Um, the reason I mention it is that, that this week's portion is entitled Maasa, and to kind of contextualize where we are in the story, the children of Israel are actually on the precipice of the Promised Land. And the, this is the last portion of the book of Numbers. And then we're going to go into the book of Deuteronomy, which is uh, Moses's recapitulation of the law. And then we're going to go forward as a people into the land of Israel following Moses's death at the end of the book of Deuteronomy. So what happens here is that God kind of takes them through a travelogue. Do you ever go on a AAA trip? Do you ever to do those when you were young. Oh, I remember that. Yeah, they used to send you the uh, the, the, the map trip and uh, the list. The of, trip. Right, right, right. So you'd go and you'd open up the every. There was like somebody. I don't know whose job this was, but there was somebody who would pick, take a marker and like, show the line as to where you're going. It's actually like the GPS system today, except mm-hmm. you know you would sort of follow this you know uh, yellow line, purple line, whatever whatever the person happened to have, and then you could open the page. Um, and you could look inside and them, tell you restaurants, places you could stop, places of interest. It was actually kind of an ingenious, ingenious idea. But the, the portion of Masa is the kind of the Jewish triptych. The problem is that this is sort of a Jewish triptych. So right. some of the pages you actually don't want to open up. It's like, <laughs> oh, no, no, I don't want to. Nope, I know what happened here. I'll just keep turning the pages, right? So the question is, why? Why does God bother to kind of go on this little travelogue with the Jewish people? And why is our history even worth knowing? Well, that, that's something we could talk about in American history as well, because we uh, we seem to neglect it at times. And right now we're having debates over whether we should even teach certain parts of our history and how, you know, those things have become politicized. Uh, you know, as somebody who writes books about history for a living, I, I feel uh, compelled to defend this work because I feel like, you know, well, the old saying is, if you don't know where you've been, you don't know where you're going. We don't just come to places magically. And and how we get there shapes what we do when we get there. Exactly right. And even though I made a joke of, uh, a moment ago about uh, that the triptych idea of Jewish history and say, I'm not opening that page, God does. In other words, it's very important for us to know the, the the bright moments, but also the darker moments. Otherwise, we can't learn from our history. And as you said, we won't know where we're going as we go forward. As, as the children of immigrants, uh, and certainly as Jews of the diaspora, we wouldn't be any place that we are today if it hadn't been for the, for the pain and the struggle and the fact that we didn't want to be somewhere else. And here we are in America. Right. And um, I don't know where your family's from. My family came from Russia, came from Ukraine. 
what is now what is now Ukraine, Poland. And we know the story. We know their stories and we know what what coming to America meant to them. And it's a very powerful story. So knowing our story matters. And the question is, what do we do with that history once we understand it? How does it affect our decision making today? Yeah, I think that's a great question. How does it affect, um, you know, what we want our new land and our new home to be, given where we've come from, given the, you know, the negative forces that compelled us to leave or the fact that we didn't have a home? What do we want our country to be? What do we want to be as people? We start with a new opportunity. I think there's a there's a role for myth, right? Your family, my family, we all have our myths of what well, the decision making that went into coming to this country, how people started out, what it must have been like for people to come here. And we tend to kind of lean towards the myth and not always consider the reality of what it meant to come to this country. And we have this great window in the sanctuary. I mean, Chiamba is nothing if not the uh, stained glass capital of the world, right? It's just filled with stained glass. And the stained glass windows are just fascinating. But there's this one window in the back of the room that shows the New York Harbor and the people coming uh, over. And they're just about to land in New York. And if you look at their faces, they're kind of filled with wonderment. And there on one side is this stained glass facsimile of, of Abraham Lincoln, and there's George Washington. And so here's the American story writ large. And on the ceiling, we have the words in Hebrew, let us make man in our likeness and in our image. But in English, it says all people are created equal. So here's the American story. Here's the Jewish story. Those windows and that ceiling, that's the myth that we follow. And that's what we tell ourselves America was for our ancestors. But the reality is, is that, that it was tough for Jews when they came to this country. Absolutely. And I'm sure your family suffered with some of those things. I'm sure my, I know my family did as well. And so where does reality fit and where does myth fit? And how do we balance that? Yeah, I tend to come down in the favor of reality um, because that's, you know, again, what I do for a living. But I can remember my grandparents saying um, they came to America and they heard the streets were lined with gold and streets were paved with gold. And I think they they kind of thought that was literally so. And then when they got here and, and moved into a tenement on the Lower East Side of New York, they saw the streets were actually paved with, with horse dung, quite literally, and that they didn't have the kind of living conditions that they had imagined anywhere near and had to get to work to make that happen. But again, that can serve as an incentive, as a motivation, right? You know, what did you dream of and how can we get to work to at least uh, try to approximate that? But how do we balance that, right? I read something recently that just fascinated me. Was the name Ig? was that the name that people came over with? In, yeah, in you wouldn't family? choose this one. <laughs> you, I don't know. I don't know that. You wouldn't go, I want to be Ig. Uh, <laughs> no, we've been stuck with that over a long time, pretty yeah. Pre-Ellis Island. So and my grandfather has an interesting story. He was uh, the youngest child in his family, and his family sent him over uh, in the wake of the pogroms going on. And uh, he couldn't come to the United States, as many Jews could not at that point in time, so that he went to Argentina. And he came into the United States via Argentina. 
But his given name was Birnbaum. But the name that he was known by in the United States was Freyberg. And the reality was, is that he chose Freyberg uh, partly because I think he had a relative there. He never went back to Birnbaum, a relative in Argentina, but he never went back to Birnbaum. He thought it sounded more American. But I, I think there's probably a, there's more to the story there about how he used, he may have used someone else's papers. I will never know the story, but I think there's more to it. But here's the myth. We always little chuckle, oh, my grandfather, you know, he thought Freiburg sounded much more American. That was the way, that's what we were told. And the reality is, is that lots and lots of Jews changed their name in this country. And this is documented. Tens of thousands of Jews changed their name when they came to this country. But the myth that families were told again and again is that there was some clerk at Ellis Island who thought, oh, this is too long of a name, so I'll shorten it from this to this. And there's lots of really cute little stories. But there's a historian and a sociologist who did the research and never found one recorded case at Ellis Island where somebody actually had their name changed. I don't know if we've talked about this in the past, but it's just a fascinating issue that Jews felt compelled to create a myth. And by the way, there was a name-changing court. You had to go to court in New York in New York State, and you would have to state a reason as to why you want to change your name, why, why you would mm-hmm. want to do that. And the vast majority of cases were, I, I don't want my children to be stigmatized. I don't want them to suffer anti-Semitism. But the main reason was, I want to get a job. Or I may mm-hmm. want to get my kids to get into college. So anti-Semitism was rife, you know, in the 20s and when many, many Jews were coming to this country. And name changing was one thing that they could do. But here's the myth. Here's the reality. And we have to balance them both. Yeah. What I like about this is that, um, you know, we're demythologizing, but we're also giving agency to the people who chose these names. It wasn't just some clerk. It was... Um, a struggling family new to this country trying to make their way and trying to choose the best course. In some cases, maybe they chose names that sounded more Jewish. In some cases, they chose names that sounded that they would blend in with American society. But we don't know, and we have to sort of accept our own humility. It's useful to try to put yourself in their shoes um, and to imagine what they were thinking, but we just don't know. Um, well, uh, see, I, I want to disagree a little bit here. I think that, you know, in the kind of the masa of of our families and the modern period in the triptych, right? We tend to say, like and for my my grandfather's family came from a place called Nimirov, and that's in Poland, which actually has a really horrible history with pogroms and massacres and things like that. So you would think that's got a kind of a dark page. Right. And you open this one up and it's just going to be blood and gore. But they also had a tremendous Hasidic community there. And it was a very, very powerful place to live. I have a picture of my great grandparents in my in my study. And, you know, these are people of stature. They're people. They don't smile, of course. No one smiled in those <laughs> days. But so right. I thought, saw them being stern. But the fact is, is that they were people of stature. They were part of a community. They had joyful lives. It was challenging. In the myth of our triptych, 
you know, you have America, which has got the golden page, as you said, and you're going to open it up and, uh, you know, it'll be just music and dancing and, and kind of patriotism. The reality was something very different. And I think we miss an opportunity today to kind of create the balance. That takes a little bit of complex thinking, is to embrace what America represents, but also to acknowledge that, you know, this was not a panacea. And Jews made hard decisions. And how would you have responded in that time? Would you have changed your name? And why? And to try and understand people as opposed to saying, oh, well, they just wanted to assimilate. No, they were making hard and real choices. Yeah, and to think about that, the fact that they, regardless of what they did with their names, they were the people we're talking about, at least in our families, were keeping their Jewish identity very strongly intact and trying to figure out how to do that in this new world, you know, how to eat kosher and how to find uh, a synagogue and how to study Torah, right? These are things that they had to figure out, you know, in a whole new setting. So that's the process that, that, that they were going through that um, we have to try to imagine today. Well, I, I love what you're saying, because at the, at the same time that people are changing their names to Americanize themselves so they won't stick out as Jews or they won't be discriminated against, they're building synagogues. They're right. creating Hebrew schools. I mean, at the same time, there's this huge boom in this country of, of the creation of religious schools and synagogues and institutions. So the Jewish community is sort of kind of ensuring its own survival and longevity and hopefully uh, success. But at the same time, Jews are sort of hiding their identity. This is such a, an American story in a way, but it's a challenging one. Yeah, it really is. I mean, as you said, they're trying to fit in, but they're also planting the seeds to make sure they can live Jewish lives in this new ground that they're inhabiting. And, you know, I love that. I love that it's a, it's a struggle and they're, they're dealing with it. There's no instruction manual for this. Right. Well, that's an interesting question. Maybe the, the Torah is our instruction the, the, Well, the, well, the <laughs> right, I'm sure the rabbis yeah, do a little you... rank, rank. Wait a minute. Wait, wait, wait. wait. Oh, yeah. I, was, Sorry, I was with I, you. I, I, was with, like... I was with you until that last moment. <laughs> I was waiting. As soon as it yeah. came out of my mouth, I said, okay, I shouldn't have said that. <laughs> no, you, you can. I mean, so, so like the rabbis, it, there's, a, there's a comment going back all the way to Egypt, right? There's a comment that the rabbis make that, you know, well, how did the Jews survive? Right? How did they maintain their identity up till the time of Moses? Right? You would think that they would have assimilated. And they say things like, well, they didn't change their names. Right? Mm -hmm. Now, I don't know what kind of slaves, what, these, what names the slaves had. I, you know, I don't But what the rabbis are doing is this is a midrash that comes from the Roman period. So what we find is that Jews were doing this for a long time. They were trying to fit in. And, and so you, that struggle that went on in America is not new. How do we balance all of that? How do we balance our story? And how do we create a balanced understanding of who we are for our children so that they can make choices as well? I think that that's really a, a necessary reality for all of us. And I think we, we shouldn't shy away from it, nor should we demean anybody else, because none of us have lived in that time. We don't know what it was like. Rather, we just try to understand it and to teach our children the, the tough decisions that Jews have made. And yet here we are going from generation to generation. And I want to say uh, for all of our listeners, Mazel Tov to you and to Jen. On Lola's Bat Mitzvah, she was amazing. And there's an example of carrying the tradition forward. Yeah, amen. Thanks so much. Thanks, Rabbi.